0: Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12. And those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I know you're a high school teacher, but sure. we often talk about elementary education, the social studies in particular in elementary. And so when you think about what children learn about government, in elementary what are the first things that come to your mind
1: okay i think probably community things i imagine police officers firefighters like they understand that part of government i imagine i'm trying to think of my own i know my kids know who the president is but i think i mean i only have a kindergartner in public school in a a three-year-old and so i don't think that i don't remember dan so, I, I imagine like community helpers is probably a big thing. If I remember like my young like I used to do a junior achievement curriculum, which was dealing a little bit with government.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I think you're thinking some of the earliest elementary experiences, right? Are are thinking about people in government positions, right? Whether it's yeah, yeah, that's where or I'm police officers. Very late. Yeah. hmm mm-hmm. Well, what what kind of things, maybe later elementary, what do you think they start to understand about the government? This is just Michael's perceptions. I'm just curious. This is a study right now, by the way. I'm collecting data. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I imagine they,
1: I imagine their understanding of government is just kind of like this big thing that they don't really, it just happens more like parents, like government makes rules and they follow these rules, but they don't really understand too much about it or how things are made. They just, I imagine it's probably very impersonal.
0: It's more of like the system. So, so I have a theory in relation to this. I think we often teach kids, and I I get on some level why we do it to think of how governments, how government officials operate in kind of the positive, right? Like the intended, the intended kind of benefits that you're supposed to get from government or people in authority. I think the harder thing to teach kids is like, when governments and government officials actually could do stuff that could be harmful to people. And I think it's like kind of a challenge to think about how do you introduce governments which are supposed to accomplish things in society, right? Like work Uh for potentially the common good, but then to also recognize the very real outcomes of governments, which oftentimes treat people disproportionately, which target specific groups, which don't treat all groups with dignity or respect. I think the challenge is how do you because we often you know kind of valorize governments as doing the right thing and being built always for the right thing. Well, sometimes they weren't. How do you teach out to kids? I wonder if there's like a West
1: Wing version, like a a youngster West Wing that we could uh, we could have them all watch. West, Wing, I found West President Wing's... Barty. I, I just I would like a little cartoon West Wing version. I guess is what there... I'm saying.
0: There is a kid president. I don't know a ton about what kid president curriculum is, but I know kid president is out there. I have seen a video of kid president. Me too. We'll we'll have to research it some more. So maybe this will be a good opportunity for us to learn about how you can think of not just the the you know intended purposes or benefits or ideals of a government, but sometimes learn how to teach kids hard histories um, and not just histories, hard, you know, contemporary issues in the present and i think maybe we could delve into some specifics here instead of just these general kind of vague examples i'm giving especially you as think, i man? have
1: no idea and i'm just actually just kind of play acting what the pilot episode of the west wing junior would be
0: right so at the end we we'll, we can come back to how you're going to turn this into a tv show this is amazing <laughs> and so with what with that whatever we did however you consider that we would like to welcome into the podcast van Ann tran welcome
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Thank you so much for coming. We're so happy to have you here. Van Antred, do you mind telling us a little bit about your background in education? Like, who is Van Antred?
2: Sure, for sure. So my background in education, and in reflection now, this is where I feel like it really begins, one of the beginning points. But my background in, in education, I think, really begins with the stories I heard while I was growing up. So I grew up in Little Saigon, the Little Saigon community in Orange County, California in particular, and that's the oldest and the largest Little Saigon in the U.S. I was mainly raised by my dad, and I grew up hearing a ton of his stories, either in the form of reminiscing or honestly, most of the time, fables about his experiences. So he would turn something that he did into a lesson for me. But throughout all of those stories were allusions to um, the war in Vietnam. And my dad is a refugee who came to the U.S. in the early 80s as a boat person. And so for him, as a naval officer for South Vietnam, he was captured and imprisoned in a re-education camp when the war ended before escaping by boat and arriving at a refugee camp in Malaysia. And then eventually he was sponsored to the U.S. after that. And I was born in the U.S. here. And so as you can imagine, I was relatively familiar with my dad's story. I'd heard some version of this in multiple forms growing up, and I had generally heard it in segments. This is me now looking back and constructing his timeline in retrospect. But as the young person, I knew that broadly war had pushed my dad away from his home and that he eventually landed in the U.S. away from his family and started a new life here. And so for me now, growing up in Southern California, I would hear his stories and I watched movies like Forrest Gump or Good Morning Vietnam or Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket and on and on and on where the Vietnam War was the backdrop. And all of these movies portrayed some form of disillusionment from the U.S. soldiers' perspectives and experiences. So I never really connected those movies with the same conflict that my dad would talk about or tell me about. And when I first learned about the war in Vietnam in school, it was pretty much the same. But now I was getting more terms. And this is in high school now. I was getting more terms like domino theory or containment, etc. And I remember at the time, it was a strange experience of cognitive dissonance for me as a young person to really want to do well in school and in a course about history, a subject that I really loved because of, because I saw it as a collection of stories. And again, I grew up hearing stories, but at the same time, I was treating this event that I was learning about as kind of this object that I was studying rather than something that had really impacted my family and my community. And I, and it was really confusing for me as a young person. And I remember I wanted to give the like, quote unquote, right answers according to the textbook and according to my teacher. But I also knew that the story that was being presented was a little bit different. I didn't quite capture what my dad had told me or what I knew to be my family and my community's interpretations. One example kind of, going off script a little bit, but the U S history textbook that I remember to this day that was used in my class was the American pageant. And it's, and it's a textbook that I now really know well, because I would return to it later on in life as a grad student and a researcher and a teacher even, but there is one quote in the textbook that I will never forget. And it was a line that appeared near the end of the chapter on the the Cold War, specifically related to the war in Vietnam. And referring to refugees from the conflict, which my family was or were, um, the book said, quote, Ford compassionately admitted these people to the United States, where they added further seasoning to the melting pot. Eventually, some 500,000 arrived, end quote. yeah yeah Yeah. and you can imagine uh so as a as a teenager I I didn't necessarily internalize that I just knew it felt a little icky but I didn't have the words to really describe that and then in returning to this textbook as an adult and later on as an educator and everything I was like oh my goodness I really read that and we really learned that Yeah, so anyway, as a young person, I didn't really have the language or the frameworks to convey any of this, but I knew reading it felt wrong. But I think overall, I knew that there was a fundamental disconnect between what was going on in the classroom and what I heard um, while I was growing up. And so when I was in college, I took history classes because I wanted to understand what stories were out there, what gets passed on and who decides, really stemming from these experiences growing up. So eventually, I became a high school history teacher, and I organized my own modern world history class around essential questions of power. Who has it? What structures facilitate it? How do people and communities enact their power? Later, I returned to grad school asking those same questions, and it's been extremely fulfilling um, to say the least to struggle alongside other educators as well who are grappling with how we support one another in in unpacking these big questions. So what really sustained me as an educator and later as a teacher educator, what sustained me throughout grad school was thinking about the different contexts in which education can happen, not only within formal school contexts or in institutions, but within communities and homes as well. And so more recently, I've been thinking about how to support teaching and learning uh, in multiple spaces. So now as a postdoc, I am—I have the opportunity to continue thinking about some of these questions and continue to work with other teachers and educators who are thinking about these questions as well. So that's some of my background in education.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your story about the story of your family and your story in education and how we kind of got to this point. I think you used an important word that maybe my intro could have used, which is the word power, right? I mean, I think that's that's what we don't think of in government is how power operates. And that's maybe the the word I needed up there to think about that. It's not just that the government passes laws, that you have people employed by the government, but those people have power to determine what other people's lives look like. And then, of course, by the, by the way, even to adopt textbooks that have narratives which can be deeply problematic right to it's it, it's it's almost depressing how often on this podcast we have guests who who tell us part of their stories and it's about how they were miseducated in schools and how they're working to change that as adults and so for educators it's just like hey think about in your curriculum right what narratives are being told I just it's it happens over and over And that's, that's what our social, the field of social studies has to confront, right? This long history of miseducation. It was American pageant, like the only U.S. history textbook that everyone had,
1: because it just (laughs) seems like
0: that was like the de facto one. You definitely, any textbook critique, you can uh, find American pageant getting uh, ripped apart oftentimes, but there's a lot of bad ones, I think.
2: Yeah. I mean, even when I became, I mean, when I became a teacher, we were still using the American pageant in some classes, I think so still around.
0: So if you're using the American pageant in your classroom, you might read it a little bit more critically or just maybe not even use the textbook. So you wrote a much better article to read than the American pageant. I and mean, this is where people can turn their energy. It was published in Social Studies and the Young Learner, the special issue that focused on Asian American histories that was edited by Noreen Nassim Rodriguez and So Yoon And so congratulations on your publication. First and foremost, it is titled mm-hmm. we, Are, we Are Here. Civic Education Through Southeast Asian Deportation Community Defense. Can you tell us about this article and the lessons included in it?
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. And for your warm congrats. Appreciate it. I think more broadly, my research is all about centering the voices, experiences, and understandings of the children of Southeast Asian refugees who are raised in the U.S., as you were hearing a little bit about. In my own experiences. And so the broader line of inquiry that really guides me and centers me is exploring how disconnects or ruptures caused by intergenerational trauma can be reconciled or can be rebuilt or can be healed through meaning making, through the through the meaning that young people are making through their historical understandings. So my So overall, my scholarship, my pedagogy really is exploring and recognizing the capacity that individual folks and communities together have have to make sense of their experiences and fight for justice. Really situated in what we're talking about in uh, questions of power and thinking about civic education from a critical lens, thinking about critical civic ed, scholarship theories, etc., and my communities in particular really supported me in uh, stepping into my power, which is why this article in particular is really near and dear to me in thinking about the role that communities play in in building in, in stepping into their power and enacting their power. So the article itself, it's called We Are Here, as you mentioned, and I just wanted to briefly touch upon the title itself. We Are Here, that phrase comes from a common refrain in rallies against Southeast Asian deportation defense. The the phrase is often, we are here because you were there and thinking about legacies of US militarism and imperialism in Southeast Asia, among other regions of the world, and thinking about really pushing folks to consider right by that phrase we are here because you were there really pushing folks to consider like what 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 circumstances what historical social political factors really contributed to us as a community being here today standing here today and now fighting for our rights in solidarity with other communities too and so yeah this article is certainly about southeast asian deportation and how to engage young learners in this difficult topic And at the same time, it's an article about storytelling and really situating our histories within these larger contexts and questions. And so the suggested activities in the article supports an analysis of the connections between power, as we've been talking about, and migration, which is important to understand when we're thinking about Southeast Asian uh, deportation. And I really center this specific case of Southeast Asian deportation community defense as one historical and contemporary example of cycles of displacement. But I think that we may, if we explored beyond my community as well, we see uh, common themes across communities. But through this particular example of Southeast Asian deportation community defense, students, I hope, are able to make connections between U.S. policies, Southeast Asian resettlement, and later deportation to really explore the way that, uh, to really explore community power. As we may be familiar with in elementary classrooms and beyond, teaching and learning about immigration often starts at Ellis Island and may not include discussions of racist migration policies or engagement with current issues. So this article is just one way of understanding and engaging those conversations and uh, really critically looking at power and migration and citizenship.
0: I was thinking about how when I talked about this focus in elementary oftentimes on the supposed, you know, positive or beneficial aspects of government, You can see it with this very issue in that this idea of, of, you know, the United States as this quote unquote melting pot and Ellis Island as being the symbol of that. Of course, it's oftentimes while we ignore Angel Island, right, which included far more Asian immigrants, we get Ellis Island, which included far more European white immigrants. But we've seen very I mean, I'm trying to think of people who've talked about deportation as a function of government and right this kind of gets a little bit what I was thinking at earlier so this is such an important aspect of showing how governments function and how powers function so thank you for like you you like made me realize how often I've even myself just focused on immigration without focusing on deportation
2: yeah I appreciate that and I think one kind of opportunity that I really think about especially related to the article is this focus um, and it's just one of many focuses fo- okay, that we could have okay. <laughs> <laughs> is specifically on U.S. legislation or legislation in particular and policies because it is, it's written, it's document, documented, and it's a way for us to really then unpack. There's a lot of opportunities there. And U.S. Le- legislation and resettlement policies related to Southeast Asian refugees in particular, there's a lot there that uh, to to explore further. Is really US policy that placed refugees, Southeast Asian refugees, in communities of concentrated poverty in under resourced and criminalized communities. And so, because of this, a lot of Southeast Asian refugee youth at the time, this is late 70s, 80s, moving into the 90s. Some uh, Southeast Asian refugee youth engaged in survival practices that ultimately placed them in a pipeline from incarceration and now to deportation. And so when we think about kind of the wide um, array of legislation, not only related specifically to migration, but I I think that one thing that this article can support us in thinking through is um, other legislation that also contributes contributes to migration and and deportation as the case may be. So when we think about the so-called war on drugs of the 1970s and subsequent quote unquote, tough on crime legislation. Thinking about all of that, that's all a part of the ecosystem of now Southeast Asian uh, deportation. At We've seen that all of this contributed to increased incarceration among many communities of color, but specifically in the Asian American community, it increased uh, incarceration. These quote unquote, tough on crime legislation increased incarceration among the Asian American community by over 250% between the 1990s and the early 2000s. And so now, many years later, Southeast Asian community members with prior convictions are at risk of deportation. Southeast Asian refugees are at least three times more likely than any other group to be deported based on past criminal convictions. And these deportations had only increased under the Trump administration. And so focusing on community struggles in particular. So this is the case of South, Southeast Asian deportation, but I want to also focus on the community aspect of this and thinking about the way that individuals and communities are, are fighting back. And, and I think looking at this community struggle is a really great example for young folks to be able to not only engage with legislation and thinking about power and migration, but then also thinking about par- power in a different way as well, the way that communities can uh, enact their power to be able to also demonstrate their enactment of civics and fighting for, again, fighting for their rights. And so one way, one offering that the article has is thinking about starting with yourself, starting with self, thinking about our own and our family's migration or movement stories. And so the activity that the article offers is thinking, starting with ourselves, thinking about any moment in our own or our family's lives in which we may have moved from one place or to another. It could be moving from one city to another, one state to another, one country to another, really just reflecting on those histories within our own lives. And then after that, placing those stories onto a larger timeline of different, specifically U.S. legislation related to migration in some way. And that's just really one small way to begin to situate our own individual stories within this larger historical and, in this case, political context, political and social context as well. And so beginning to then ask the questions, right, supporting students to see and to engage with what was going on at around the same time that my family may have moved from X place to another place. did may, Could that have had an impact on my family's experiences in some way? Could that have impacted me in some way? And these are just the beginnings of, of having these conversations.
1: I like the timeline of like all the all the dates and all the different laws that were passed. And I think, yeah, they have the website where you can get more of that of the timeline. So it includes like the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, the Refugee Settlement Act, 1980. That's super helpful when creating those timelines. This is uh, definitely well worth the, uh, <laughs> make sure to check out the article because the resources just seem fantastic.
2: Thanks Michael. Yeah, and it's it's very much tailored or I hope it can be very much tailored to the context that you're teaching in as well. And so in the article we you know there's a resource where you can look for more legislation for the timeline in the article itself I probably highlight 10 different pieces, uh, 10 different events that you can place on the timeline. But depending on your location in the US or your student population or your own experience, et cetera, you can pull in any event. And the timeline goes back to the 1790s. And we can see that one of the first pieces of legislation related to migration or citizenship in any way in the United States was the Nationality Act of 1790, which was the first law. on this particular resource to define eligibility for citizenship and thinking about the way that it was restricted at the time to quote unquote free white persons. And again, just like a starting point for a conversation or a point of comparison even in thinking about how legislation may have changed since then or not, to what extent. So there's there's a lot of possibilities, I hope.
0: And I I do really appreciate... Allowing those laws to interact with people's personal stories, because even for those groups who, you know, students in the class who were not affected by those laws, it hopefully can allow for them to recognize their positionality. Right. And it may be in a position that this law did not affect my family. Right. Which is a really important recognition of the privilege that comes with their identity and to start questioning how you can be an ally or co-conspirator to groups who are targeted. And the interesting thing about some of these laws is some of these laws were specific towards Southeast Asian groups and others were not. And so that's another important thing because some of these laws are are written in neutral ways, seemingly, right? Like they don't name groups or anything, but they do have disproportionate effects on groups in application. And And those types of things are just such important things for getting at, you know, how power functions through government.
2: Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. And I and some of the questions that show up in the article too, as, as you're kind of extending our thinking, some of those questions are, where do you see power in the events on the timeline? If we maybe focus on a particular event or legislation, we can ask even further, dig even deeper, who has power and how are they using it? And then if we want to then think about other areas in which power may be manifesting, what are the ways that individuals and communities are coming together to combat injustice is a really like um, specific question that, that we can ask. And later in the article, again, as I mentioned, this article is at once uh, an article about Southeast Asian deportation. It's an article about Southeast Asian deportation community defense, thinking about the ways that communities are fighting back. And it's an article about storytelling and stories and the power of stories. So in in order to highlight that piece, there are some resources as well to think about um, specific stories of community members impacted by Southeast Asian deportation. So, Southeast Asian community members share their stories and there are some resources there. But in thinking about the questions that can be applicable to the stories that you may you'll find in the article, but also thinking about stories that you might tell in your own classroom or beyond, you can think about what is this person's story? Who is their community? And thinking about Southeast Asian deportation, we can ask who else, who else has been impacted by this community member's detention and potential deportation. This is a way of Thinking about deportation, which is, or and many events, but specifically deportation is not only something that impacts the individual, which it sometimes can be framed as impacting the individual, and thinking about all of the other folks within this person's lives and thinking about the com- the way that communities around this person is also impacted by this event. And so we can think about and tying it back if we're looking at a community member story, we can ask where their story might fall on the timeline to really make those connections to, to government power and the impact of it as well. We can think then about. What connections we see between the legislation and our own stories or maybe the community member's story in our own stories, if any. And so, yeah, very broadly, there is power in our stories um, and power in stories overall. They not only show the impact of these particular policies, but also the ways that broader communities are impacted.
0: Can you share one example of a story? Because I know you point out in the article that some of these stories can be very difficult and challenging because they involve violence, they involve separation of families, right? They're very challenging issues to talk about, which of course makes them important for an elementary classroom. Um, Can you share like a story or maybe, and and maybe some advice on how you'd approach using that story in elementary classrooms?
2: Yeah, I appreciate that. Oh my goodness, there's so many directions that we can go. I think that one particular community member that I highlight in the article is Saray Ime. And I highlight Saray's story because he has been really, I think, vulnerable with a wider audience and he's been really, yeah, just really open about his own story in multiple contexts. And I think because Saray has really been open to sharing his story in so many different ways, his is a story that I think is particularly powerful, especially because we see his family, his wife, and his children fighting alongside him and speaking about the impact that his potential deportation has had on them in a really difficult emotional way. And we also see them continuing to fight and, and, and we see community organizations and communities rallying behind Saray and his family. And we see Saray. In interviews and in a documentary that has been uh, produced about him, we see him really connecting his struggle to to his community and to other folks impacted by deportation as well. And so, and so, I think his is a his is a good story to start with, especially to focus on as an entire class, and to really think about to really reframe or acknowledge first the 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 difficult impact that. Uh, the deportation process has had on Saray, but in also thinking about who is around Saray and how are Saray and his family and his communities, how are they showing their power throughout this entire process? So I, I think that that's one way to approach this particular topic. I also share a graphic novel kind of strip, drawn and and uh, or illustrated and narrated by uh, T. Bowie, who is a graphic novelist, a Vietnamese American graphic novelist, who used her talents to capture different community members' stories. And this is when we need to get a bit more personalized with our own students and what we know about our students and what we and how we gauge their comfort, I think, because T. Bowie depicts multiple communities, community members' stories. Um, and as you were um, alluding to, there is a lot of difficulty in these different community members' stories. And so I would say probably start with what you know about your students gauge their comfort levels and perhaps focus on one community member story and because it's it's illustrated and drawn i might even just start with one frame and think about what what are we seeing in in this frame how does it make you feel and 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 then and then move from there depending on depending on how you feel your students are processing that and and taking that in again and i think similar to saray being able to then end in a place where we're acknowledging the pain acknowledging the difficulty and also thinking about where does power show up here how how are folks able to step into their power and they're not doing it alone and i think that's the main the main piece to to emphasize
1: so, Van Atten, what advice do you have for teachers or educators who are wanting to to do these types of activities? So, obviously, know your students is probably a good thing. What are some other advice or tips that would you give to uh, teachers who want to want to who should and want to take this on?
2: I think, most broadly, my advice for not only this activity but throughout as we're thinking about ourselves as history teachers just asking the question who is here and who is missing in, in, in multiple contexts, not only necessarily about the content, but in thinking about that on multiple levels. So who is here and who is missing and why, that question of why. And I would be transparent about that with my students and encourage them to really think about and think alongside them about that why piece of it, because I think that why then is able to open up open up a lot of opportunities for reflection i think related specifically to southeast asian deportation community defense i i want to just reemphasize what you were saying in in the sense of knowing your students because as and i mentioned in the article as well i think as with all of our teaching all of our instruction all of our engagement like this foundation of trust and love and care is is there right it's our it should already be there and it's ongoing and you're continuing to build that trust with your students as you're engaging in these activities and so really recognizing and being transparent about normalizing different statuses in the classroom and beyond, and really just, uh, yeah, just being attuned to the stories that are surfacing or not in the classroom. Specific to Southeast Asian deportation defense, one community organization that's holding the work is the Asian American Resource Workshop in Boston. And I, I shout them out right now because I really think they say it best when they say on their uh, website related to deportation. They say, we believe that our organizing must be informed by and center those who are most impacted, and we will continue to show up and stand with the Southeast Asian community in the fight against deportation. The piece there that I want to reemphasize is informed by and center those who are most impacted, and I think about that a lot, especially in our own teaching as well. In addition to that, I think I would just invite educators to consider the way that all of this is ongoing as well. And when I say this, well, I mean everything, but I mean, I when you engage with this topic in the classroom, as well as with any topic, it's not kind of a one and done type of thing. You continually process and reprocess and uh, reflect on it. Specific to my work about relationships between power and migration and specific to the Southeast Asian deportation community defense, that work is also continuing. Uh, The struggle also continues there. So since this article was published earlier this year, the Southeast Asia Resource Action Center and the Southeast Asian Freedom Network, among other Southeast Asian organizations from across the country, have continued to strategize about how to keep our communities safe. This September, so just A month ago, these organizations gathered in front of the Capitol building in D.C. to support and celebrate the Southeast Asian Deportation Relief Act that was just introduced to Congress. This federal bill, the goal of it would limit Southeast Asian deportations and provide further protections for those who who currently face deportation and so during the bill introduction and the ongoing theme here is impacted community members had an opportunity to share their stories and emphasize the urgency of ending us's detention and deportation policies and so i think i would say as a field and as a profession that is focused on civic engagement and education it's so important for us to continue to recognize the ways that we as individuals, but also as communities, particularly communities of color, conceive and practice civics and enact their power as well. And in, in continuing to think about our stories and the power of our stories on a small scale, but also in thinking about on this national level as well and more broadly internationally um, and the impact that our stories could have.
1: Dr. Tran, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We absolutely appreciate you spending time with us.
2: Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it.
0: Where can our listeners find you and your work online?
2: Oh, thank you. So you can find me at uh, on Twitter at V-A-N-A-N-H-T, or you can go to my website, vanantran.com.
0: Perfect. And if you want to hit both, you can go onto Twitter and tweet about her website. So then... That'll cover both of them. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for this incredible article, all the resources, sharing your stories. We have a lot to take in, process, and take into our own classrooms. So we will hopefully continue the discussion online and in other spaces.
2: Thank you. You're welcome.
1: Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat and we get it, we're there. We're there for you. Hit us up at Visions of Ed. I mean, if you haven't already, and really, come on. Subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. We'll be anywhere. there.
0: Yeah. Any, You Michael just call keeps, it our name. He keeps making this claim, and we are not in many places still. He says it. I guess just play the podcast if you can. See? And if you write us a five-star review, <laughs> we will read it on the air. We would also like to thank Zach Seitz of the University of North Texas for his editing skills. Zach Seitz. You can find me Ed on it's Twitter. Nice. I'm it. at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42. I, I just keep going, marching forward, Michael. I know, uh, I know. <laughs> until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast.
1: Signing off.